You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Driving Law Podcast. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me this week, co-hostest with the mostest, Paul Doroshenko. Hello, Kyla. Nice to see you. Yes. You weren't in the office today. No, I was um, at the Universal Women's Network Success Summit, speaking on a women-owned business panel, and then a... Um, women-led business roundtable. Well, there you go. Yeah, it was a long day. <laughs> yeah, I'll bet. A long day of a lot of thoughts and ideas and progress for women. Good. We hope. Well, that's good. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah. Anyway, it's nice to see you on a uh, Thursday evening. Yes. Ready to record the podcast. There's uh, a number of uh, interesting driving things we've been thinking about. Lots of things we have to talk about. I thought that we'd start off by talking a little bit about Alberta. Sure. We talked about it before when the legislation was first sort of bandied about, but... Well, originally the NDP started talking about it and then they backed away from they it. And then backed the down, yeah. Conservatives started moving toward it again and then they backed down. And now they're now they've tabled it. Yeah, they've they've brought in an IRP scheme. Hasn't well, it passed hasn't yet. Passed yet. But it will. Yeah. Because you can't vote against impaired driving measures. No, if you want to be reelected, of course you have to always look like you're being tough on impaired driving and yeah. and unfair to impaired drivers. But I thought you know we've Suspected talked about impaired drivers. we've talked about the legislation before. Um, we've talked about the IRP scheme in BC extensively, but I thought we would sort of tie this in with the larger political discussion that's being had in North America right now about Black Lives Matter and, and more specifically, police disproportionately enforcing the law in a violent and unnecessary way, or just not enforcing the law and acting unlawfully towards people of color. Um, yeah, I started to get to that in an interview with Jalen and I on 630 Chad on um, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't quite get that far, but of course you and I and Michael Spratt presented to, was it a Commons, House of Commons committee or was it, that was a Senate committee or something? House Maybe. of Commons, I think. Yeah. I mean, he presented, I don't know if he was on our panel or who presented before us in a different one, or, but we talked about this and that the concern arose as a result of the... Um, random um, arbitrary test provisions of people, people getting pulled over basically for any reason. And this yep. denial that there was any concern about people getting targeted on the basis of their skin color when they're pulled over. Yes. Um, I, I think a lot of people don't believe that police conduct traffic stops with people of color more than they conduct random traffic stops with White people or white passing people. People who are not people of color. Yeah. Don't necessarily believe it. People who are like, you talk to any <laughs> any uh, uh, young male whose family is of, of uh, uh, Indian descent, for example, in the lower mainland, you can be, be here for five generations 
Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You're going to get pulled over more often between the ages of 17 and 30, mm-hmm. uh, much more often than uh, than a white kid. You are white. Yes. How many times have you been randomly stopped to check your license or your sobriety? Once. Once. In how many years of driving? Uh, well, I started driving when I was 16. I mean, I got a learner's permit when I was 14. Mm-hmm. But I was 19 once, and I was driving a Fiat, um, and I was pulled over for a sobriety check. Did and, you pass? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think I told the officer at the time, they, they wanted to smell my Slurpee. I think I told the officer at the time, there was a time, you know, when I was still in high school when it might have been worthwhile smelling my Slurpee, but not anymore, not anymore. Mm -hmm. And then there was actually, there was one other time I was pulled over and they said that I was weaving on the road. Yeah, but you were uh, weaving. Nah, I probably wasn't, but I was driving a Triumph Spitfire and not a single one of those cars are roadworthy. Right. So. Okay, well, I, a white female, have never been randomly stopped. I've been stopped legitimately this was in edmonton of course and actually know, sorry i want to correct that i'm not a white female i'm a white passing female white passing female. i'm metis but you can't tell that by looking at me well i should say that this was in edmonton when at a time period when there was almost nobody who wasn't white so we're talking 35 years ago but you go to like i went to fort mcmurray recently for a trial and I had got there in the morning the day before, and I had some time to kill, and so I was just walking around town, checking out Fort McMurray. And I was, like, surprised to see how diverse Fort McMurray was, because I always had these perceptions Alberta's of Alberta changed. as being super white, but there's, like, a huge black population in Alberta now. Yeah, Alberta changed entirely. I was in During the Ari- course of my lifetime. When I go back now, I mean, I've been gone for 20 years, but when I go back now, it's you go to Western Mall and it is a, a fully um, multicultural experience now. It's not used to just be white people. I was in Arizona and I had a lot of um, Uber drivers there that were Somali yeah. and was talking to them. And they said, well, if you're Somali and you're immigrating to North America, you either go to Arizona or you go to Edmonton. And I was like, Edmonton? <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, sure. Okay. A few good Somali restaurants. Yeah. Well, I've never eaten Somali food, but next time I'm in Edmonton, maybe I will. Um, Fucking cold in Edmonton, though. I mean, Arizona is better for the weather, but worse for the racism. Yeah. But Alberta, there's lots of racism. Did you see the uh, woman who tried to arrange a uh, Black Lives Matter march in Innisfail? No. She put it on Facebook and was just attacked, attacked, attacked. And I had a friend. Chris, lovely guy, he was my roommate, and he married a woman from Innisfail. I advised against it, and uh, he should have listened to me. Uh, <laughs> not be, not because of anything to do with her necessarily being from Innisfail. Uh, I just didn't think it was a good fit, and it turned out it wasn't. But the um, I ended up with a bit of a connection to Innisfail for a while, where I found out that there was, you know, basically full-on racist KKK style. Yeah, well, anyway. What's going on in Alberta? If this is going on in Innisfail, it's going to be going on everywhere else in Alberta. And let's not forget that while it is currently suspended as a result of the pandemic, the Calgary police earlier this year announced and began their random breath test program, meaning that every person who was stopped was breath tested. Well, but the reason they did that my understanding is to was to avoid the 
allegation that people were being targeted, they were going to make everybody blow. Yeah, except for they're only, they're targeting who to stop. Well, I bet that they've got internal, and here's somebody who, if you're a young lawyer, a uh, uh, law student in Alberta, make a Freedom of Information request to the uh, Calgary police to find out who they were stopping and breath testing up until the time that they did that, because I'll bet they looked at their own internal numbers and came to the conclusion that they had to do something, because I'll, I will bet uh, there was a concern about bias with policing. I bet and they don't have the data. They may not have the data. They may have just had the concern, and you might be able to find it in some emails or something like that through mm -hmm. a Freedom of Information request. So my point is that I've been doing this for 20 years. I've had lots of clients claim that they think that they were targeted on the basis of their ethnicity, not just on the basis of the color of their skin. Um, and they can't all be wrong. Uh, and I've seen circumstances, and you and I, in fact, acted on a case out of Banff. Uh, where some students from India had a rented car and... Um, yes, that was a straight-up example of racial profiling. That Oh, I forgot about that. That was so... It was awful. It was, it was horrible. Awful. And uh, it was one of the police officers there. You could see we had video. Okay, back to video. And where uh, video will be useful when <laughs> police officers have... Uh, have uh, and it's, it's just a matter of time, right? Body cam video. Uh, but the video in that car, in that case, was what revealed it. You could see it in the expression of the one officer who wasn't. It was like the other officers in the George Floyd case who are standing there. Well, they don't, you know, they don't do anything. Well, yeah, I know, but there was one officer who you could see the disgust on his face. Yeah, but he didn't do anything. He didn't do anything. But you could see the disgust on his face. He looked at it and he was like, this is wrong. Yeah, you well, could the, see the, look the on officer his face. was like demanding that they produce their passports and saying that they're not allowed to be out unless they had their passports, even though they were there on a student visa. Not allowed to be yeah, in Alberta without their passport. That's uh, not the it, law. Um, despite the, because they were students <laughs> studying in uh, British Columbia. And the other officer was looking at them. So, I mean, I've dealt with lots of cases, lots of cases where it was clear to me. Yep. You yeah, have well, too. You have I, too. You had a, a. I had a horrible incident. Uh, a black man who was stopped pulling out of the parking lot of a pub, random sobriety check, um, felt that he was being profiled, submitted evidence in his hearing to say that he was being profiled, and said specifically, I don't believe this would have happened to me if I were white. And the adjudicator in the tribunal that's supposed to be, you know, the barrier between state misconduct. What is it the BC Supreme Court said in Spencer that one of the purposes of review mechanisms like these, apart from attempting to do justice in individual cases, is to ensure that overreaching conduct on the part of state agents is detectable and discouraged. One thing that's overreaching conduct is racial profiling. And yet they pull this guy over for nothing and then demand that he provide a sample and he refuses, saying that he's being profiled bunch of other officers show up and then he says, okay, now that there are witnesses, I'll blow. But he wasn't going to do it without witnesses because he thought nobody's going to believe me if I dispute what this officer's saying. And he said, I don't think this would have happened to me if I were white. And the adjudicator made this comment. It's reported in the judgment in BC Supreme Court to the effect of, I don't understand what you mean by that. Yeah. And it was bullshit. like, how can you not understand? Like, do you live under a rock like but i knew that that was their 
few. I knew that they were just going to deny any oh. possibility of racism. I have never I succeeded have, on a on a racial bias argument well, I had in a an case, IRP. I had a case in the beginning of the IRP scheme mm -hmm. where my client was a manager in a large corporation out of Washington State, came to visit his family, and he was black. And the police officers poked him in the shoulder after pulling him over. They were poking him, poking him, poking him in the shoulder, in the left shoulder, um, with about six officers standing around. And it was um, an allegation of refusing to provide a sample. And after towing his vehicle, they left the windows down. Damaged his uh, car. And, it, well, he came back. I mean, they left them down just a bit. He came back a month later to get his vehicle, and there was mold growing ceiling to floor. Uh, and we argued the racial bias, and they just disregarded it at the superintendent's office. And this is a big problem that we have in, in BC, uh, that we have in Canada, that we have across North America. Uh, and lawyers are making the argument. We're not allowed to criticize the tribunal. Um, you know, we can appeal the things. Uh, but um, it's very disappointing for yeah, us to see it. Look, I appealed that decision or sought judicial review of the decision. And I went to BC Supreme Court and argued it. And the lawyer, now retired, uh, for the AG, took the position in the hearing. And this took like three days of court time in the end because he was so adamant about this with cases and everything. Um, that there is no such thing as racial profiling against black people in British Columbia. That the only instances in Canada of racial profiling against black people are specifically limited to young black men in Toronto driving nice cars. And beyond that, we don't have a racism problem. And I'm sure I've told this story on the podcast before, but I just, I, I could barely contain myself in that hearing like i just wanted to stand up and scream how fucking offensive can you be yeah well i have represented a number of black males who have been and and it's it's much worse with the black males and for example with even east indian males they've been treated the black males have been treated much worse uh, and one of the things that um has come to me um in the responses when I've expressed my disgust was they know that this is just how it is and they're not going to appeal it further because there's no point because they know that the the deck is stacked against them and I absolutely think that they are right uh, the deck is stacked against them um, and the smart decision a lot of the time is to is to not invite more uh, retribution from the police or retribution from, you know, as you would view it, from the justice system. Well, look you at cannot expect the justice system to give you justice in those circumstances. When you make that argument at the superintendent's office, I make that argument at the superintendent's office, and we're treated like that. And you have to go to BC Supreme Court for it, and you can't be sure that that argument's going to succeed when you've got a lawyer on the other side saying, well, there's no such thing as discrimination yeah. except I'm, like this. I'm sorry, but, like, what is wrong with the attorney general to have instructed, right? Like, I know a lawyer... You take your instruction from your client and you go into court and you represent your client's position. And your client's position may not always align with yours. You might, you know, I've been in court representing people accused of and pleading guilty to things that I think are abhorrent, personally. But, you know, my job is not to judge their conduct. My job is to represent their legal interests. So, yeah, okay, fine. Um, but what the 
fuck? Like to give your, to, to take your client's instructions like that and go, yeah, I'm going to go make this argument with a straight face without sitting your client down and going, well, wait a minute. Do you think that this is the best position to take? Do you think this is the most advantageous route to defend this case? Well, because you lose credibility. I think it was the superintendent of motor vehicles. They weren't calling up the attorney general and asking them to do that. But it's uh, well, it just... It's, it's their counsel for the AG, right? They're not counsel for the superintendent. I know. But the uh, superintendent of motor vehicles, of course, is involved in all of that. And yeah. we know that the, uh, the way the discussions work in government there. Um, the upsetting thing to me is that, um, well, I mean, I, in that particular case, I bet there was very little discussion about what the lawyer was going to say on behalf of the attorney general. No, it was just defend uh, this. Defend this. And, um, but the, um, uh, the, the fact that the superintendent of motor vehicles has taken this position and we know that they get instructions from lawyers with respect to positions to take on certain legal issues, um, just broadly in their training. Mm-hmm. And that we've seen this pattern where just reject any allegation of, of racial bias. Um, well, and you see absurdities in the decisions. Like, I I don't agree that the officer was acting in a way that was racially prejudiced. You've led no evidence to show that this officer has racial prejudice. Exactly. Well, what, exactly where are our clients supposed to get that evidence? Exactly. It's impossible to get it. You've just got it on the basis of what's being said. You can't cross-examine the officer. How many times have you stopped white people in the last year? How many times have you stopped black people in the last year? How many, you know, you can't you can't ask for those details. You can't do a freedom of information request in time to get the information, nor would it be released to you because of the limitations on freedom of information requests. And it's not like you're raising it in the context of a charter of voir dire, where then there would be some burden on the state to adduce evidence um, to respond to that. Right? Like you're, you know, presumably in a charter voir dire, in a criminal trial, your client would testify and then the state would put in statistical data from the officer's stops to show that actually 75% of this officer's random traffic stops involved white or white passing individuals. If it's anything beyond the percentage of the people who are in the population of that. Yeah, that's true. It should be like 92%. Yeah, well, I mean, if they, if they pull over 8% and the population is is five um you know that is the concern a- anyway it, it makes me sick um it repulses me yep. it pains me that i'm 20 years on in my practice and this is still going on How is i saw it at the thing? beginning um the uh and uh, mostly because i dealt with lots of young uh, east indian males and again when i say east indian they've been here for three generations. I don't so, think we say East Indian anymore. Do we just say Indian? South Asian. South Asian. Fair enough. Um, I don't want to use the the incorrect term, but I also want to be the way that they describe themselves at the time. Um, That's kind of like, I think, kind of like Aboriginal and Indigenous and First Nations. None of them are offensive. I, I say First Nations, and I know Indigenous is now what the government's using. and I Indigenous you know, is that's correct. That's fine, too. It's more inclusive. Um, the... Um, yeah, okay, I can see that. But in any event, these young males would express this to me, and it was just a, like a matter-of-fact thing. And I saw it, and I knew it was happening. But I didn't have so many uh, people of African descent at the time. I've had a handful over the course of my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can tell you, vast majority dealt with differently, jerked around. And it's just that much worse. And I, I fear for 
you know, the young black male who's, who's leaving the house. <laughs> yeah. Well. One in 1,000 in the United States, black males are murdered by, killed by police officers. One in 1,000. I just read that statistic on Twitter. I didn't, you know, follow it up. What is that? Point one. You have a 0.1% chance of being killed by a police officer just you're because black, you're just because black male. You are, happen to be a black male. I mean, you might be committing an offense. You might be, you know, That doesn't problem, justify that being doesn't, killed. No, none of it does. Actually, and, and as I watch all of this stuff, all of these things that we're seeing, all these different incidents we're seeing, every one of them, the offense that was suspected at the time or, or that they had probable cause of at the time did not justify the response of the police with respect to even the physical detention, let alone the gross physical detention that put the people's lives at risk. Mm -hmm. Like, let them go. Here's you, a court you've date. identified them. Go home. Yeah. <laughs> go get them, go get them and later on arrest them at home. Yep. Give, send, give them a, a, a document to compel them to come to court. I don't mean to get off this topic, but you do raise an interesting point that transitions into another topic, which is our recent court, Ontario Court of Appeal decision um, that was released, I believe, today or this week, um, overturning a conviction of an individual for a drug offense who had been stopped for a prohibited driving offense. Oh, is this the one where they searched? Yeah. Yes. So what happened was this individual um, had been stopped by police. The police were investigating a prohibited driving offense. They conducted a traffic stop. They arrested him under the Highway Traffic Act because it's an arrestable offense there. Arguably an arrestable offense here. Depends on how you read the Motor Vehicle Act. I think there's a drafting error that actually makes it not an arrestable offense, but I've never got to run that argument in trial yet. <laughs> not likely to lead to a remedy in any event, and people aren't arrested. They're just detained and released, so... Except if they arrest before ascertaining ID, in which case you would exclude the evidence of ID. Okay. <laughs> Kyla, you know, you, you always come up with an argument. Uh, but I never get to run them. Um... So, yeah, they they pull him over for this. They arrest him under the Highway Traffic Act. Um, they speak with him. They determine that he's uh, a prohibited driver. He's got an outstanding warrant for prohibited driving. And they arrest him pursuant to that warrant. Do a pat-down search. Locate his wallet. Take the ID out of the wallet. Also, arguably not a lawful search. Um, and then uh, they put him in the back of a police cruiser and go over to the vehicle and start searching the vehicle. And they say that the purpose of the search was effectively to get the rest of his belongings from the vehicle because they figured that he was going to be held in custody overnight as a result of the warrant. Um, they didn't actually have any grounds to do it, um, but they did anyway. And we see this in did prohibited they... driving cases all the time where they go and they do a search of the vehicle. Incidental to arrest? Incidental to arrest. You're, you can't see me, but I'm making little quotes in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's the, that's the explanation. And they get a jacket from his car to take to the police station for the guy because it's always cold in the police station. And before giving it to him, they search the pockets of the jacket and lo and behold, 495 fentanyl pills. Shit. Yeah, fentanyl's a problem because half the time the court looks at it and goes, oh, it's fentanyl pills, 
you know, it's, it's very real evidence, blah, blah, blah. Real evidence. It's a significant threat. Seriousness of the offense. Yeah, balance of, of uh, whether or not it's going to bring the administration of justice into disrepute. So what happens? It goes to the, he's convicted? Convicted. Convicted at trial. Goes. Is this the Peel Regional Police by chance? <laughs> no, I don't think it is. It's Thunder Bay. Mm. Um, so yeah, they... Uh, they charge him with the fentanyl offense. Who knows what happened with the thing? Anyway, the Court of Appeal turfs the conviction, declares the search unlawful, says, in order for a search to be incident to arrest, first of all, the search actually has to be logically connected to the arrest. You have to be searching for evidence related to the offense that you've arrested the person for. You can't conduct a search incidental to arrest and look for child porn on somebody's cell phone, for example. Yeah. You uh, seem I, skeptical. I, I just don't think there should be any, any search except for weapons. I don't think uh, there should be a search incidental to arrest either. I think, you know, that that's essentially justifying the validity of the arrest um, by backdooring in what's found in the search. Find something to yeah. arrest the person on and then search. Well, there are some cases. I had this in a trial where Crown suggested that the case law said that you can make an arrest, and then search incidental to the arrest, and if you find the evidence to justify the arrest in your search incidental to the arrest, then it can be relied on retroactively to bolster the grounds. Um, no it can't, but there are some fucking wacky cases out there that say that. Yeah, we had a little struggle with that in a case in Nelson. I think. Yeah. 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 That was the case I was thinking was of. It? Yeah. yeah. Um... Not so. The judge didn't accept that. <laughs> no, the judge found another way around it. But yeah. yes, the crown argued that. And Never that have was, to address it head on. It was uh, the prosecution was doing a good job, but it was also the prosecution was receiving instructions from the prosecution. PPSC. PPSC that was still under the Harper era, I think. Yeah. <laughs> At that point, yes, it was because the conviction was pre-Harper. Yeah. Was was under Harper before the government change. Yeah. Anyway, so there was that. And then they also said, so first you have to actually have it logically connected to the purpose for the arrest, but also if you find something, that evidence is only admissible if that evidence actually relates to the reason for the arrest. So the Crown can't go 495 fentanyl pills on a drivable prohibited arrest. Yes, real charges. Oh, so I arrested him for impaired driving. Searched him. And searched him and found the fentanyl pills. You can't charge him for the fentanyl pills. No, you could charge him for the fentanyl pills because he's arrested for impaired driving. And that's evidence of impairment, right? It's a drug. But, oh, okay. say, but find an unregistered handgun. handgun? Oh, okay. Well, that's a good one for good one for the defense. Mm-hmm. It's a great decision for the defense. Except, I mean, of course, it's a handgun. Forget it, everybody, if you're listening to this, thinking to yourself, <laughs> oh, okay, I'll guns be are fine. <laughs> the, uh, I'll tell you right now, guns are admissible pretty much all the time because... Guns. Judges hear the word gun and say to themselves, public interest, gun, charge, gun, gun, mm -hmm. gun, gun, prosecutors stand their gun, 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 gun. Gun, 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 gun. Gun violence. Gun violence, yeah. Yeah. But so. it is an important case because it does clarify the law and search. It is really narrow, though. They talk about how, like, if you're doing an inventory search, as our BC Court of Appeal recently ruled, that's different because you're impounding the vehicle and you're not searching for an incident to arrest. You're searching for an unrelated purpose that's broader. 
Okay, so they just have an out, and there's a new way they can do it. Then they can just do the inventory search. Well, well, you but know, but you we're can... detaining them, and we didn't want him to allege later on that he didn't have his jacket with his cocaine in the pocket. So we did a quick search. But think about it: if if you have an impaired driving arrest where something is discovered, the decision to impound the vehicle is always contentious. Well. I would I say is always contentious, but it's actually not always contentious. In fact, it's often overlooked in these cases, but it does constitute a search and a seizure. The officer's authority in British Columbia to impound the vehicle in an impaired driving case flows from the Motor Vehicle Act, Section 215, which is a discretionary impound. And the case law in the area says, of course, that you can only impound if you are um, concerned about uh, continuation of the offense or if you're exercising your discretion under the act. And how many times, Paul, in a trial has the officer actually articulated that? And then if they say, I was concerned about continuation of the offense, well, what fucking, like, what evidence did you have that he was going to continue the offense? The person was arrested, detained, taken back to the detachment. Provided breath samples and then driven home. (laughs) And his car was still in the parking lot of the bar. It was cooperative. Polite and cooperative. Okay, all right. Yeah. So, well, so it's a good decision, but it's not the uh, panacea for which we had hoped. Well. And it's the Ontario Court of Appeal, so they may or may not follow it in other jurisdictions. But This is true. I got a BC Provincial Court judge recently to not follow the Ontario Court of Appeal. Good for you. Yeah. It... Our provincial court, I got to tell you, and BC is for the most part, over the course of my career, I've been pretty proud of them. I like the provincial court. I like it a lot. I don't know why anyone elects trial in Supreme Court, because provincial court's way better. Well, they're there. Are they, you know, those judges are listening to this stuff day in, day out. Um, and yeah. they're often lawyers who have an ex- significant experience. With criminal uh, in, law. Well, not just with criminal law, with court. Yeah. You know, they, they've spent a lot more time in court than you would if you were... Uh, a um, commercial litigator and appointed to uh, to court. Well, this is the thing. You know, I think you and I talked about this recently. The, the perspective that you lose when you make $311,000 a year and you deal primarily with lawyers who are coming before you to argue the really boring, dry law stuff. You know, the same as the Court of Appeal, well, sure. right? You live on the you live on the west side of Vancouver, or you live in the nice part yeah. of Victoria or whatever, and you've lived there, you you know, went to law school and your parents were wealthy enough that you could go to law school. It's different if you're you know, worked at two 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 Main Street as a prosecutor. Well if you're for sitting at two 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 Main Street <laughs> and you see there. a revolving door of people who are struggling with drug addiction and poverty and mental health issues that aren't being addressed and um, who are constantly coming before you, you actually have a better understanding of what life is really like for a large percentage of Canadians. Whereas, and this is not a criticism of any individual judge or a, a criticism of the court. I think it's it's more a criticism of the way that our courts insulate, that our higher courts insulate themselves from the realities of of life for most people. Even if you have a, but, a trial. But we've done it too, because sure. we don't elect to go to Supreme Court. So those judges don't get to see it. Sure, but... Uh, but we don't, you know, we... How often do we get not, to elect? It's not in our client's interest, usually, to elect to go to Supreme Court. But the, you know, even when you have a trial in Supreme Court and somebody's elected to go there, you're not seeing 
you know, the gritty bail hearings and the accused yelling in the dock. That's not the norm. What you're seeing is is or, lawyers. Or the sentencing for the guy who, like, works on the lot moving cars. Yeah. You're, no. you're seeing lawyers in robes who look expensive. And the robing process even sort of whitewashes it away. It's, it's considered to be this great equalizer, which in many respects is great. But in some respects, is you're not actually looking at the power imbalance between the state and the accused. You know, when Crown Counsel can be paid up to $284,000 a year and Defense Counsel might be making 70000 a year, struggling, running a legal aid practice, not making money during the pandemic. You know, none of that, that, that imbalance is all washed away. And I know this whole, like, justice is blind thing... Idea. Is, I put quotes in the area. <laughs> ...is important. But if we put too many blinders on justice, then justice can't see what it needs to see to do what it needs to do. There was a, a uh, Supreme Court judge um, years ago who used to every once in a while come and sit in provincial court and was just allowed to do that and just did it to maintain the connection. Uh, and there was another Supreme Court judge who um, went from BC Supreme Court back to provincial court because um, I've been told I have hearsay reasons, but uh, basically found that it was too disconnected. Um, and um, that... Um, that inspires me, but I don't see that anymore. Yeah, I, th I thought, you know, I'd toy with the idea in my head of why we don't make it mandatory for our appellate level and uh, court judges to sit a week a year in in the downtown Vancouver courts, like 222 Main in the downtown community court. Dubail court. You know, see yeah. the lowest of what comes into the court, the people who are at the lowest point, see that, engage with those people, and you have that reminder once a year for a week, just to keep it in your head. Well, the other thing is you see some people who are absolutely, like, disconnected from reality in, in every way, shape, or form when you're there, and you get this, you know, otherwise you're just isolated from that, and you get these lawyers in front of you, and you think everybody is thinking clearly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are people who are psychopaths. There are people who are scary, violent people. There are people who are just going to come in and lie and everything is a lie. There's people who are going to be, you know, just cannot maintain it despite the fact that they're generally good people. Yeah. Uh, and you don't get that sense. And you also obtain no ability to assess credibility in those people if you're not seeing them. Yeah, well, I watched I watched a provincial court judge in Richmond recently deal with an individual who was in the um, prisoner dock, who couldn't he physically could not stop himself from yelling out swear words, and interrupting the proceedings, and the well, I like that guy. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> I, mean, I was like, you're all I'm of me. Not, not, <laughs> I, I, I shouldn't joke it, but you know, I get it. Yeah. Anyway, speaking of the provincial court. I thought maybe we'd give a brief update on the status of traffic court. Yes, the status of traffic court is a fascinating thing because it's been um, sort of the uh, lonely, um, un lonely forgotten court. Um, yep. And uh, the you posted a tweet, um, and the court tweeted back at you saying, "Well, hang on, that's not quite right." But they also hadn't 
stated what was going on and no. it was a reasonable assumption that you and I and a number of people yeah, have made. We were anticipating traffic court June first, <clears throat> then they pushed it back to June fifteenth. That's Monday. Yeah. And <clears throat> then they just announced this week um all traffic court matters from March eighteenth, twenty twenty forward are adjourned. And um until when? Uh, we don't know. And I I I can only assume that they have a big plan that they're not telling us about. But I have concerns about this now, and I don't know that we should discuss those concerns on the podcast at this point. I don't think they listen to the podcast. Fascinating. Well, it may not be, you know. Maybe if the court listens to the podcast, they could prevent a very big problem. I think they may have a big problem. Um, In any event, um, they have a problem, and they know it now, with potential delays. They do have a problem with delays, but I'm not so concerned about the delay. I know. I know. I think I know what your concern is. And but you're trying to make me not say it. No, I don't think we should say it on the podcast because I okay. think it's be, I don't want to give anybody any ideas that are not fully developed on it. I would say that the they have, they do have a concern because of the backlog that is going to be generated. Yes. Um, they must have a concern about the fact that the decisions made by the court and the methods of addressing the pandemic are going to be scrutinized, of course, by the court later on. Yeah, you and I talked about that, though. I don't see well, it being I a big know. deal. Yeah, but that was March. We're now into June. We talked about this last week. It's getting now they're in now they've just are adjourning everything without even giving us a date range. But it's only in traffic court. Jordan arguably doesn't apply to traffic court. It applies to traffic court. Um I don't think that's merely the issue. I think it's everybody else's matter that is going to be delayed as well, that is not necessarily COVID-adjourned, that comes up that's going to be delayed. And the police have been out issuing tickets like crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody who's got one right now should be calling a lawyer to dispute that ticket because I suspect there's going to be a whole lot of remedies going on. Well, I wrote a letter to the court this week. And I will say this on the podcast because it is a developed idea. I felt confident enough to like write the court, <laughs> which Dear maybe court. makes me a fool. Dear court. Dear court. I um, go to traffic court a lot. No, it wasn't like that. Uh, it was a little more developed. Um, the I heard some rumblings and I can't remember where I heard them, that the court didn't think that it could deal with telephone appearances for traffic court because the Offense Act, Act, Section 15.2 sub 2, says that the prosecutor may appear and prosecute by teleconference, but the Offense Act is silent about whether or not the defense can. And in my opinion... This overlooks section 15.2 sub 1 of the Offense Act, which says in a trial on a violation ticket, the justice hearing the matter may adopt any procedures as are deemed necessary for the uh, expeditious resolution of the matter or something like that. But there's an emphasis on expediency. Thankfully, generally speaking, they are making good decisions with yeah. that because they yeah. could they could make a lot of really bad decisions could with adopt that. a procedure where yeah. miss lee cannot cross-examine this officer uh, uh, <laughs> where i'm going to cross-examine you yeah um, I, I have seen that i have it, seen that it, too kind of somewhat informally but yes um anyway uh so the question i toyed with was does that provision authorize them to do telephone dispositions to clear the backlog and the answer i came to having researched the issue, and shout out to uh, Shin, one of our uh, 
uh, summer students for helping me with the research, um, the answer that I came to was that a trial includes the plea and the sentencing. Of course. Because absolutely, there's like Supreme Court of Canada authority on this. Absolutely. That and so by using the term trial, law. the legislature, well, I wanted law though. I wanted like, yeah, I, know, I, know I know it's trite law, but it's like. Well, it's a, all these things that we find that are procedure that, you know, you can't even find a decision on when you go back. If I'm going to write a letter to the court, I have to be like, here's yeah, the authority that allows yeah, yeah, you to do this. Yeah. Um, so, yes, by using the word trial, I think the legislature deliberately intended to allow for these procedures. And there's also a provision, section 133 of the Offense Act, that essentially says if there's no power provided in the Offense Act to do something, or it's not covered in here, then the default is whatever the summary conviction procedures are in the criminal code. Well, the summary conviction procedures in the criminal code allow telephone appearances. Yes, indeed. And so... That, that section of the Offense Act has been uh, uh, somewhat a bane of my existence, but maybe now it's actually got some useful thing. Well, why not have, you know, set up a system? People can, on their own volition, contact the officer if they want to resolve their matter. Lots of officers don't want the backlog. I think about that one Vancouver Police Department member that you'll know who I'm talking about. Very nice officer. Issues more cell phone tickets than any other police officer and routinely and is probably right now thinking, Oh my God, I'm going to spend the next Holy three years shit. in traffic yeah. court because of the yeah. backlog. And can we wrap some of these things up? He's like one day a week, at least has had an entire courtroom to himself. He's got the whole list for the whole two afternoon sessions down at, at Robson square because he issues so many cell phone tickets and, and so many and people And he's made the them. decisions already about whose trial yeah. is going to run because he, they're usually somebody who's got a bad driving record or they were an asshole. And he's <laughs> he's also often willing to resolve things. M many people that deal with him, he says, buy a mount. And between now and the court date, if you can prove you got the mount, I'll, I'll do a deal for you so you don't get these consequences. So prosecutorial discretion. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. He's, he's an smart. excellent officer. Yeah, he's, he's and he's putting people in compliance with the law. But how is he going to manage his backlog? No, I don't know. I mean, he's he he'll be working until he's seventy five to deal with the backlog. Yeah, and you know, with the VPD's pension policy, he could probably retire next year. Probably otherwise. Could. So. But there's a number of officers like that who I yeah. could pick up the phone and say, "Look, you've yeah. got this one." Um, you know, this guy is this and this and this, and these are the facts. Let's deal with this because otherwise we're going to end up 12 months down the road. Yeah. And I probably wouldn't have to get that far in the discussion. And there's some officers I know there's no point in calling them and it's going to be a trial. I think of certain officers out in Port Coquitlam area. Um, some of the one, Portman one, Freeway Patrol One or two in Victoria. Members. <laughs> yes. One, one of whom recently followed me on Twitter. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, um, so that's the, that's that. Now, forget all of that, because we also have something fun, Paul. What's that? The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. <laughs> the Ridiculous Driver of the Week. <laughs> I love the Ridiculous Driver of the Week, and I mention it every third uh, driving law podcast that I was the one who came up with the concept of the ridiculous driver of the week. What, do you want a, like, fucking cake or something? 
No, no. I want, I credit. want, you know what? I want songwriting credit. I promoted you to co-hostist with the mostest. You used to be occasional, sometimes podcast guest. I'm so happy to be the co-hostess of, of, with the mostest. I, I will take that. So there you go. <laughs> you got promoted. You came up with an idea. You contributed. You promoted. Yeah, if you come up with too many ideas, I'll have to demote myself to promote you. <laughs> You're the rising star, Kyla. Speaking of rising star, we'll get to this after the um, Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Okay, we're almost out of time. So our Ridiculous Driver of the Week is a police officer in Ontario who was stopped for going, what was it, 176? 179, 179 In a 50 zone. In a 50 zone. Well drunk. Well... He might be innocent, uh, but we did see the laser reading. It looked mm -hmm. like an ultralight. And um, the fail. And the fail on, on the, the drager. Uh, on the drager. So, um, you know, I don't uh, necessarily trust the readings on a roadside breath tester, but he was taken back to the detachment and uh, apparently provided samples over as well. So there are a couple of important points there. Um, mm -hmm. Don't drive at 179 kilometers an hour in a 50 uh, zone. Don't drive with a blood alcohol concentration uh, over 0 0.05, although mm -hmm. 0 0.08 and up is the criminal uh, offense. And it's actually not an offense to drive with that. It's an offense to have that blood alcohol concentration afterward. Important mm -hmm. no note. Um, and um, But the kind of sad thing about this is this officer is already in trouble. Mm -hmm. And you kind of get the feeling that uh, it's the spiraling problem. You get in trouble for one thing. Um, you might be... You know, you might be, there might be mitigating circumstances for that, but then your life starts falling apart. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, I'm sympathetic. I'm not taking any great, uh, um, schadenfreude or anything about the fact that it's a police officer. The police officers, whenever they're charged, it always makes the news. I, you know, I feel sorry for the individual, um, that, uh, he's facing this, but 179 kilometers an hour, uh, when you've been drinking is, um, just fucking dangerous. I think the um, thing that stood out for me was that he's facing this extortion charge. He made $140,000 a year in the year that he picked up the extortion charge. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and so there's obviously something very serious going on in his life to either cause him to do these things if he is guilty of them or to cause him to be constantly singled out like this if he is wrongly accused. Well, it's not that Something's... he's being singled out each time. I mean, you, Could know, be. you get charged way that is possible. Maybe too. his colleagues hate him. Could be. Maybe they hate him because he was the honest guy. Who knows? I'm not abandoning the presumption of innocence. I'm never abandoning the presumption of innocence unless they prove the uh, guilt. But remember, you know, this was before your time. You were probably like very small. Uh, but um, the... <laughs> Police in Vancouver used to take. You're uh, calling people. me fat. <laughs> oh, the police in Vancouver were known to take people to Stanley Park and beat the hell out of them. And um, finally, one officer ratted them out. Uh, couldn't stand by anymore while this took place, and that officer suffered uh, retribution as a result. I don't know what happened in the end, but I know that that was a uh, something that happened. Um, and um, you never know. He could have been the guy who was the. Uh, who was the honest guy and suffered retribution. You don't know. I'm not abandoning the presumption of innocence, and I'm still building the defense, but that's just who I am. Now, Kyla. What? 
you have a song released this week. Oh, I Caught the Virus. It's a new song that's been released by the Accutones, but it is all Kyla singing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was recorded back when she was still at home with the coronavirus and uh, recorded the video at the end. You can even see the her, her temperature on the uh, thermometer. It was released on YouTube um, yesterday, two days ago, two days ago. Two days ago. Uh, to uh, quite some acclaim. People didn't realize Kyla yeah. could sing, and she actually can sing quite well. And everybody has listened to it and said, wow, that's Kyla. She sings really well. Very so, nice of them. Um, there was a uh, lot of post-production. They, it's been played on the radio twice. Uh, once on, uh, I understand, on Drex's show. Once when I was on 6.30 Ched yesterday, they played it, and I almost burst into tears. Um, <laughs> and uh, it may uh, be played again next week. I know there's another radio program that is considering playing it. So it is a... Uh, so where are my royalty checks? <laughs> it's, it's basically uh, Kyla's kind of a little bit of uh, Patsy Cline meets Bob Dylan meets Katie Lang meets Neil Young. Um, and singing about her experience having the virus. Uh, and uh, I would tell you that you should hum a few bars right now, Kyla, but Lewis can put it in at the end because we don't have to pay royalties on it. That's we play true. music at the end of the show that happens to be, you know, music that, that, that we, wrote. we wrote and that you're singing. It's, it's all ours. So there you go. Okay. So we should close it up, Lewis. All right. That's our Driving Law Podcast. If you need to get in touch with us, give us a call, 604-685-8889, or find us online, vancouvercriminallaw.com, and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law. 